Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for a manifestation of your grace, for the fact that we do not earn or we do not deserve it, but nevertheless, because of your grace, you continue to bless us. You continue to bless the human race, though it's fallen, and though it rejects you, you continue until the day of wrath to pour out your grace. We thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, for his finished work on the cross, for his work even now at your right hand. And we pray that the Holy Spirit tonight would illuminate our hearts to more of what the Son is doing at your right hand even now. In his name, amen. We're still reviewing from last year because when we get into the new stuff this year, we're going to be very uh, get into a lot of details about the return of Christ. And those details, uh, much debated details, depend and are contingent upon knowing this past background from the Old Testament. Not only the Old Testament, but it's also contingent on understanding the nature of the church. It's a, this is a major issue. And if you don't understand how the church differs from Israel, the two are not the same kind of thing, then you can't sort out the prophecies that have to do with the second coming and the end of the church age. So that's why I don't apologize for spending time reviewing where we were last year. Um, And we're going to continue tonight with that, that event, the Ascension and Session, Uh, Next week, we'll go into the, uh, we'll speed things up a little bit. We'll go into Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and uh, then probably take us a week or two more uh, on the results of that, what what new thing happened in history when the Holy Spirit came to earth uh, at, at Pentecost. And then we're going to look at the church age, what's been accomplished in the church age so far, what lacks what things lack still to be accomplished so the church age can be finished and go on to the next stage in history. So that all demands a lot. So rather than just plunge into uh, the prophecies having to do with the return of Christ and and the end of the church age, I want to go through this background. So we're still still, uh, looking at the next great event, which uh, in the framework that is, the next event, it's already passed, Um, And that's the ascension and session of Christ. So we're going to start there tonight. The ascension and session of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those two words go together because they describe two parts of the same thing, actually. The ascension is the Lord Jesus Christ ascending from that ridge line just east of Jerusalem into heaven in full sight of everyone. And then, as we saw last time, if you turn there to uh, Acts chapter... uh, Well, turn to Luke 24, because Luke is the author of both Acts and Luke. So, he ends his first volume, the Gospel of Luke, the very last chapter of that Gospel. He, He ends by describing the situation where Christ rose from the dead. I mean, where he rose into heaven. And the thing to remember about these kinds of passages, folks is, and this is why I keep linking doctrine to history, you've got to understand that the things the Bible speaks of as truth happened in public view. It is not mystical 
private, spooky religious things here. This is public, public, out in the open, miracles that have historical evidences for their support. And you have to learn to read the Bible that way. And I, I must say that in our generation, you've got to lean very hard on learning the Bible this way. Because we've got an entire generation out there, people who have been fed from the academic world, who visually, when moment you read, the moment you use the word religion, the moment you use it, there's all kinds of baggage that come to bear. And if you're going to be successful at trying to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, understand it's like a missionary going into a foreign tribe and having to struggle with the language. So that you don't want to be like the missionaries that went into Korea back at the turn of the century, apparently. I think it was some Roman Catholic missionaries went into South Korea and they tried to translate the Bible into Korean. Well, one of the big things when you translate the Bible into another language is finding a word for God in a language and a people that don't know Him. And what are you going to use for the God? You know, we got G-O-D. That's our word for God. What's their word for God? If they don't know God, then you've got all this vocabulary and you've got to be careful that you don't pick something out. Well, apparently they weren't too careful and they picked this word out for God and they translated it into Korean and so forth. And they were noticing that it wasn't really working. The scriptures really weren't working. Until later on, the uh, linguist corrected the translation and said, oops, you picked the wrong word. The word you picked out in the Korean language for God is the word that they mean for evil spirits. So what a disastrous translation that was because he picked the wrong word. So when you see these things, um, you want to understand that the Bible does not present religion like you would learn it in a college classroom, read it in Time Magazine, or see it on a TV talk show. What those people mean by religion, which is the popular idea, is that religion, first of all, is your private opinion. In other words, it's, it's so mysterious, uh, it's so non-intellectual, it is so non-rational that you sort of feel your way. And I feel this religion's for me. Or I feel that religion's for you. And it's everybody's feeling. And so there's not a real content to it. So what I'm trying to do in this framework series is I'm trying to lean the other way, deliberately oppose the culture at this point, and make the point that here we are having a revelation that is historically valid. So when you see things like this passage we're looking at right now in Luke, observe that in verse 50 and 51, he is referring to places. I mean, look at the detail in the text. He's not talking about, oh, well, gee, Jesus decided to really pull a good one one day and he, he had a disappearing act. So what he did is he just, he just went up in the air somewhere. And we felt. Well, no, nobody feels. There's the ridge line. And that's where the Lord Jesus Christ ascended to heaven from. So it's, it happened in a place. And that's the thing we want to understand. All this happened in places. You can go there today and see the place where the Lord Jesus Christ rose into heaven. 
And that's what we mean by historical public revelation. It's not private, it's public. And we can take a map, you can construct a map, and you can say, look, here's, here's the place, here's Jerusalem, here's the location of the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the temple area, and uh, we'll draw a point to it so you can see it. Um, here's the temple area, point up here, and uh, this whole temple mount still there. Yeah, the temple is destroyed. But the temple mount still there. You can still see the corner of the wall. This wall is still there. You can drive your car along the Kidron Valley and look up and see it. And you look across, and there's this whole area here for about half a mile from this road north is a ridgeline. That's the ridgeline I just showed you in the picture. That's where the Lord Jesus Christ ascended from. And what's significant about it is when you see the Bible refer to a place, you always want to say to yourself, what else happened in that place? So you take a concordance or you take a, a, a book on biblical ge geography and you say, you know, I'm just curious. God tends to repeat himself. And we found out that in the Old Testament, that's the ridgeline where the Shekinah glory left the temple prior to the exile. So, why is that? Well, who is the Lord Jesus Christ? John introduces him as the one who dwells. He dwelled among us. It's, it's the same concept of the Shekinah glory. Except this is glory not inside a brick temple. This is glory in a person, a human being. So, Jesus Christ rose. He lifted up his hands. He parted from them. Verse 51 tells you only that the Lord Jesus Christ lifted off and he parted. It doesn't say anything else because Luke is going to tell us a little bit more in Acts chapter 1. So if you turn to Acts 1, again, we'll review this, this point. And you'll see as the weeks go by why I have chosen to review Ascension and Session. Because this starts to mark off the church age and why the church is not the same as Israel. They have different origins at different times for different purposes. And that controls how you interpret the return of Christ with respect to the church and with respect to Israel. Okay, so here we have the Mount of Olives, the Lord Jesus Christ ascends, and in Acts 1, here's Luke, same author that you just read verses 50 and 51 in, now he's describing more to us in his second volume because verse 1 of Acts, notice he says, the first account I composed all Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. So he tells you that volume 1 of his investigation of Christianity was up to the day that Jesus was taken up. See verse 2? It, that's, that's referring to chapter 24 of the first volume which is Luke, Luke 24, verses 15 51. Um, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen to these he presented himself alive many convincing proofs notice verse 3 this isn't mystical religion this isn't what somebody feels this isn't somebody's opinion this is something open to historical investigation many convincing proofs Jesus appeared to 500 people at once people 500 people don't hallucinate at the same time these people aren't on, on a drug high somewhere some hippie commune that's having a vision. 
the Lord Jesus Christ appeared repetitively in different contexts in his resurrection body. And when he appeared, he just appeared sometimes. Remember the road to Emmaus? He's sitting there talking. He gets through. And you look around. Where, where did he go? He disappeared. And the picture you get, if you look at the text carefully, in those days when he was appearing and disappearing, was he would suddenly appear in a room. And the impression you get is that he was there all along. And he just suddenly made himself aware. And so now the disciples are thinking, gosh, you never can tell where he is because he could be right here. We just don't see him. And that's the, that's the thing. And then suddenly they would see him and it wasn't a spirit. It wasn't like a ghost appeared. It wasn't like a spirit suddenly went boom on a Halloween or something. This is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ so that what Thomas, who said he was a spirit, what did Jesus challenge Thomas to do? You think I'm a spirit? Come here. You touch me. A spirit doesn't have these. And he pointed to his flesh and bones. So you touch me, Thomas. Watch, I'm eating here. So it's a mysterious thing, the resurrection body. It's the first piece of the new heavens and the new earth. The Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection body is the first piece of the new creation, the ultimate eternal universe that will replace the one we live in. So, at that point, verse 3, he's appearing, he's disappearing. Now, after the ascension and session, the Lord Jesus Christ's appearances stop. From this point on in history, no one sees the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ walking around. Every time people see him, he's in heaven. The only time we see him walking around is in the book of Revelation when he's doing an inspection of the churches. And like a military inspector, he comes in no notice and walks around and you have to report, inspection reports in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, what he thinks, positive and negative. He gives an evaluation of the churches. He says, you're doing this right, you're doing this right, this one you're not doing right, and I want this corrected. So, there's his inspection. But, but apart from that, when, when Paul sees him, when Stephen sees him, uh, they're looking up and they see the Lord Jesus Christ at the Father's right hand. So, they're seen from heaven. Now, the, the exact liftoff, so to speak, of this, this is almost like Cape Canaveral here, um, verse 9 of Acts, Acts chapter 1. After he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. In other words, this wasn't they turned their backs and didn't see him and he disappeared. The idea here is that the disciples were watching on, on this hill and they watched him go up. And it's interesting, they said he was lifted up. That's a passive voice. Remember the difference between active and passive. Active voice, subject does the action. Passive voice, the subject receives the action. So the Lord Jesus Christ is being lifted up. Now, if you were seeing there, and try to imagine this. You're, you're on the Mount of Olives. Jesus has just got through talking to you. So he's, you know, he's five or six feet. There you are, at your height, our height. And now, while you're sitting there looking, he's going up. But apparently, the way he went up wasn't like he was swimming or Superman, you know, his cloak, and, and he, he didn't physically convey the fact that he was making the motion. In other words, the idea that he was apparently passive and standing still, but going up. 
That's the image you get from this verse. Otherwise, you would in verse 9 think that Luke would have reported something different. You would have said in verse 9 that Luke would have said, the Lord Jesus Christ said, up, up, and away kind of thing. But that's not the report. The report is, when these people are watching, he's just taking, he just floats up. And then it says, a cloud received him out of their sight. And meteorologists, I've often thought, I wonder how high the cloud is. You know, going out there now, you've got a ceiling of about only 100, 200 feet. This morning, the cloud levels are running about three or 4,000 feet. And they've lowered considerably because of the rain shield. Now, the question is, I wonder how high the cloud was that talked about here. We don't know. We don't know how fast he rose. You know, we launch weather balloons out at Aberdeen Prison Ground. They go up a thousand feet a minute. So you just have to sit there for a minute or two and you're up at 2,000 feet. Well, did Jesus rise? Was his ascent rate at a thousand feet a minute? Nobody knows. It's just all we got to go on is verse 9. He was lifted up out of their sight and finally a cloud received him. Now, why am I stressing all this? Because of the next verse. Watch what happens in the next verse. The guys are looking up like this. Well, when you're sitting there looking up, you're not looking next to you. So here everybody is looking up, and they didn't notice that all of a sudden now two people have joined them that weren't there before. And they turn around and say, who are these guys? So in verse 10, as they were gazing intently in the sky while he was departing, all of a sudden, behold... Now we got two men up here in white clothing standing next to them. So they don't see these guys at first. They see them only afterwards. They, apparently after the cloud received Christ, they said, oh, okay, well, he's gone. And they said, well, Joe, you going, who are you? So these two guys are here and they're dressed in white clothes. And they said, men of Galilee, why are you looking up into the sky? Uh, angels tend to have a sense of humor in the book of Acts it's really funny to watch how the angels interact with people and when you get into the original languages it comes out very forcibly some of the things they do when Peter's in jail it's interesting the angel comes up to Peter and smacks him and says alright get up and get your clothes on the angel doesn't clothe Peter the angel wakes him up with a smack and you, you wonder, I mean, how hard did he hit Peter? He knock him over? What happened there? So they, they're kind of individual beings that have their own style, interaction, and so on. One day we'll get a chance to see them. But here, these, these guys say, why are you standing up looking in the sky? Now, that's an interesting question because the clouds received him. It's all over. The ascension has finished. Now, the, the tail end of verse 11 is crucial because that's what I want you to see because when we talk about the prophecy and the end of the church age and the tribulation and the return of Christ and Armageddon and all the rest of it when Christ returns look at verse 11 what does it say? very simple it says this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven well, how did they see him go into heaven? They saw him go up and a cloud took him. What are we going to see him coming back? He's going to come out of a cloud and come down. So, the Lord Jesus Christ comes down the way he went up. And it's the same kind of concept, just different direction. 
Now we want to uh, look at three verses. We did last. We did this last year because after the cloud receives the Lord Jesus up, we're out of the domain of photographic observation. At this point, if you had a video cam, you have to stop because from now on. The only information we have about the Lord Jesus Christ is what is revealed to us in the Scriptures because we can't see Him. We can't look Him at Him in binoculars. We can't uh, speculate. So we have Scriptures that interpret. Now let's turn to the first one, Ephesians chapter 1. This is a Paul's interpretation, guided by the Holy Spirit, of what happened to the Lord Jesus after He disappeared in the cloud. And we're going to go further tonight, and I'm going to go into some recently discovered things from astronomy to emphasize, because I want you to walk away with the image that the Lord Jesus Christ physically left this planet and physically occupies a space somewhere because he has a resurrection body. He's not just everywhere. In his humanity, he has a body, probably less than six feet tall. 160, 170 pounds, maybe. And that body is somewhere tonight. And it's the Father's right hand. And it's a point that's not here. So he traveled from here to there. And what does Ephesians 1, 20 and 21 say? There are some things that are extremely important for the nature of the church. And our mode is operandi. You see, behind all this is that there's in the church age, there's a unique modus operandi. That is, a way of living that is not characteristic of saints of the Old Testament, for example. Yes, they believe the same way they were saved, the same way we are. But in living their life, the content of their faith is not the same as our content. They didn't know Christ hadn't risen from the dead in the Old Testament. So, we know, we're the, the other side of that event. So necessarily, the content of our faith is different than they had. So in Ephesians 1.20, it says, He raised him from the dead and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now that phrase occurs several times in Ephesians. And we're going to come back to that. That is an important phrase. In the heavenlies. Say it again. He is seated in the heavenlies. And that is something which um, occurs several times uh, back in, over in Ephesians 6. Uh, if you look there, uh, Ephesians 6, chapter 12. Uh, Ephesians 6, uh, verse 12. Look at, this, look at the word. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness. Where? In the heavenly places. See, this is a domain. There's a domain in the universe called the heavenly places. And it's in that domain that the Lord Jesus Christ reigns and sits but it's also that domain where angelic powers compete and are on this great crusade of good and evil in the cosmos. 
The battle is going on. It's not just on planet Earth. It's throughout the whole cosmos. That's why, interestingly, dramas like The Empire Strikes Back and so forth and science fiction is, is a regular... Um, when you read these science fiction things and go see different movies about the authors of that may not be Bible-believing Christians. Many, most of them aren't. Really, unfortunately, uh, C.S. Lewis is only one of the few Christian authors that has ever used the motif of science fiction in his trilogy. Uh, what was it? Out of the Silent Planet. What's the other one? Palandra and something else. But C.S. Lewis wrote and pioneered the use of science fiction. What was that? The, no, The Hideous Strength is different. There was a trilogy that he wrote uh, in, in using the science fiction motif. But in all these science fiction things, I want you to connect this, and this is part of maturing as a Christian. You ought to be able to encounter things like this and categorize it and, and sort it out and put it in its place. So when you come across science fiction and you come across these great cosmic dramas, think of the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And think of the fact that the dramas are actually, we, I believe, as, as great literature, because great literature does this often, because we're all made in God's image, even the pagan author is made in God's image. Now, what does Romans 1 tell us about every, every person? Do they know God or don't they? They don't know God. What does Paul in Acts 17 say about the Greek poets? They knew God. They were expressing it in their literature. Screwed up, not true, masked and confused with darkness and error, but nevertheless, they can't totally suppress knowledge of God. It's impossible to totally suppress knowledge of God. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're an atheist or anything else. You can tell me all the hot air that you want to, but down deep, you can never totally suppress your knowledge of God. These authors can't. And in the science fiction idea where you have the whole universe, inevitably, what do these authors all do? They talk about good and evil in the cosmos. I mean, even Star Wars, you have Darth Vader, you have the dark side. Well, what is that? It's a, it's a screwed up version of the truth. And what it bears testimony to is that these guys can't, I mean, they may be great Hollywood producers, but in the final analysis, they're Romans 1 people. And they can't suppress this. So it emerges in their art forms. It emerges in their literature. It emerges in their movie pictures. It, it emerges in their screenwriting. Well, what Ephesians 1 says, that the Lord Jesus Christ is seated in this heavenly domain, and in verse 21, a claim is made. Now, this claim we may not think much of, but if you read church history, the first and second century Christians thought a lot of this. Because the first and century, second century Christians were poor people. They were trodden down. I mean, you talk about persecution. They had no rights. They looked upon as a bunch of freaks, religious idiots. And they were despised by Roman society. And they were just oppressed. And they had no earthly support. But what Ephesians 1.21 says... The risen Lord Jesus Christ is far above, not just above, but He is far above all rule, all power, all dominion, and every name, not only in this age, but in the one to come. 
The Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, one of the ideas you want to get out of the ascension and session is that he has the supreme rank of all time. That means what if you are Satan? What did Satan want to do? What did he say he wanted to do in Isaiah? That's right. He wanted, I will be like the Most High. Well, sorry. The throne is now occupied. You know, one of the great um, lines, uh, it came out of real history actually, but if you've ever read, uh, seen the movie MacArthur, I think Gregory Peck plays the role of uh, Douglas MacArthur in that film, there's this great scene where they're discussing the islands, the northern Japanese islands. And, of course, the Russians sat around, sat around all during World War II and didn't do anything to help us. We bled and died getting Germany, Japan suppressed. And then all of a sudden, the Russians wanted half the northern part of Japan. Well, there's this scene in the movie of this Russian general, this arrogant so-and-so, comes in and he sits next to, next to MacArthur, played by Gregory Peck in the back seat of the car. And he says... Uh, We've already talked, uh, General, with your president and with the United Nations. We are occupy- I'm going to occupy the Sakhalin Islands, or whatever the islands were, north of Japan. And Peck has this, plays this Caesarian MacArthur. It's really great. Just with that, that arrogance that MacArthur was known for. A brilliant arrogance, by the way. And he looked at him and he said, No, General, you're not going to occupy those islands. What do you mean? We discussed it in the United Nations. He looks at him and he says, they're already occupied. He says, well, who's occupying them? I am. End of the conversation. And, see, that was when Americans acted like Americans. The world never likes it when you stand up for your rights. Ooh, we're going to go it alone. That's right. We usually have to anyway. So, that's what happened here, and this is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. The throne is occupied. Now, Satan can do what he wants to in certain domains, but he's not any longer. He hasn't got a shot at the throne now, because now there sits on that throne a member of the human race that he tried to destroy in the Garden of Eden. He knew that God was planning something for the human race. And he thought he had the human race taken over and he thought he could frustrate the plan of God by sabotaging God's plan for the human race. And now, with the ascent of the Lord Jesus Christ, far above all principality and power, he's looking up at a man. Before, he was looking down at a man. While the Lord Jesus Christ went through his earthly ministry, what did Satan try to do? tempt him. Remember one of the offers that Satan offered the Lord Jesus? Bow down to me and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Lord Jesus Christ didn't say, well, they're not yours to give, did he? Because at that time, Satan had the power to give. Bow down to me. We'll make a deal. Work this out. Negotiate. Win-win situation. No. Not a win. It's a win-lose situation. Jesus is the winner and he's the loser. So, the Lord Jesus Christ sits at the Father's right hand. Now let's go to another verse. Let's go to uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. We want to pick up the flavor of this. There, there is an emotional impact 
to all this. And I showed you last week the painting from the medieval artist. Again, I don't care for this art, but I will have to respect the fact that the artist that did this is trying to give us a message. And you'll notice in that painting that the Lord Jesus Christ, he's painted him piercing that layer of angels. And that's the painter's way of expressing this truth, that Jesus Christ ascended far above the principalities and powers. That's an artistic rendition of this truth. So, Ephesians, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Here's another aspect to this ascended Lord Jesus. Since then, we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. Notice it's plural. Not passed through the heaven, but passed through the heavens. And notice it's not he went into the heavens. He passed through them. There's a journey here, folks. There's spatial movement. That's what I'm trying to convey of thousands of miles and maybe millions of miles. There's, there's a movement in space between planet Earth and this place called the throne of God. He passed into the heavens. Jesus Christ, let us hold fast our confession. And then verse 15 is a very practical side, which we'll return to as we go on with this and deal with the nature of the church. For we have not a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things like we, yet without sin. So let us draw near with confidence. Because the Lord Jesus Christ sits at the Father's right hand. He represents us in the throne room. Like we have representatives and representative government. We have representatives that are supposed to represent us in Washington, D.C. The Lord Jesus Christ represents you and me. If you are a believer tonight in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a personal representative at the helm of the universe. Now, let's start connecting the dots here. You see what a powerful thing this is and why, really, it's a sad thing that in our day, how few sermons do you hear about the ascended, seated Lord Jesus Christ? There's a powerful truth here that He represents us. He is face to face. He is within inches of the flaming cherubim. He is within inches of of the manifest glory of God. And he's perfectly acceptable there. He is at the helm of the universe tonight. So, it's not run by a Martian. It's not run by somebody out of Star Wars or Star Trek or something, some five-eyed creature in a cosmic bar. The Lord Jesus Christ comes from planet Earth. He is of our DNA. And he sits at the helm of the universe far above all the angels and all the cosmic powers of all the planets of all the galaxies. Now let's go to one other passage. 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 22. I'm showing you this because different authors of the Bible are picking this theme up and using it. Who, says Peter, is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, by the word, having gone, that verb, having gone, verse 22, means go on a journey. 
having gone on a journey from point A to point B, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to Him. So it shows you then that the Lord Jesus Christ is in a position of power and rank. And the early Christians from the time of the New Testament gave testimony to this. Now, practical examples today. You've heard us, and you've heard, and you've done it yourself, praying in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay? Does that take on any new meaning tonight for you? When you pray in the name of the Lord Jesus? You know what we ought to be thinking about when we say in the Lord, name of the Lord Jesus Christ? We ought to be in our mind's eye visualizing this ascent and seat session. Because we are praying in the name of our representative who is face to face with the living God. And that is why we pray in Christ's name. That's why Franklin Graham had the nerve in the middle of the inauguration two years ago to get out there on the common in D.C. with everybody watching and make the very impolitic, um, politically incorrect thing instead of just praying to God, where God could be anything that you dream up, uh, happened to conclude his prayer right before the whole nation in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has taken heat for that ever since. Oh, people have gotten hot at Franklin Graham for doing that. He doesn't care. He's going to do it again. And he just did it again last month. He got it in front of the United Nations this time. And it was on an AIDS conference. So he got out in front of everybody and he prayed right again in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody fell over backwards and didn't like it. And that's too bad. We'll be ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't like it? I'll pray twice in his name. Just so you get the point. And that's, it's, not, it's not trying to be arrogant. It's recognition of the fact that the Lord, something's changed here. We've got a member of the human race at the Father's right hand. Of course we're praying in His name. What name are you praying in? Buddha? So we pray in the Lord Jesus Christ's name and we're not going to be ashamed of it. And if people don't like it, that's too bad. Now I want to diverge for a moment here and go into something else because I want to fill your minds with this imaginative power of this journey into heaven. Out at the Institute for Creation Research is some very exciting stuff going on. As, as the years go by, uh, the creationists are really coming up with some neat stuff. And it's taken a lot of work and a lot of time, a lot of uh, this kind of stuff This doesn't happen. If you've been around science and research at all, you know that 95% of research is grunge. 5% is glory. But for every paper that's written, for every presentation that's made, for every book that's done, there's thousands of hours of going blind looking at numbers, data, crawling around trying to get this instrument to work or that instrument to work or something else to work. Well, astronomers have talked for years about the redshift. And, by the way, these slides are taken from Dr. Humphreys at the, at the um, Institute of Creation Research. And this is taught in high school science text. I mean, everybody in high school and above has heard about the redshift. Because this is the rationale today for arguing that the universe is expanding. The redshift is like 
is a sort of a, it's, it's not exactly like this. I, I want to be careful. I'm not misleading you. It's sometimes compared to a Doppler shift. That's really not true here, but for sake of illustration, you hear an ambulance. What do you notice about the sound of an ambulance? The siren on coming towards you versus the sound of the ambulance after it goes by you. Goes by you. you ever hear the difference? It comes out and then the rhythm of the siren lengthens after it goes by you. Another example, hear the helicopter. It's a medevac chopper from the state police or whether it's one of the army guys over here at Edgewood. When that helicopter's coming here, it's thump, 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 and it's coming towards you. Listen carefully next time after it goes by you and you'll hear the shift in the sound. And that's because the sound waves are coming towards you and the speed of the wave is coming towards you, so it makes them shorter. After the object is going like this, the sound wave is coming off the helicopter, but the helicopter is moving this way, so the waves are spread out as far as your ear is concerned, so it's lower frequency noise. Well, this Doppler shift uh, can be measured. So astronomers sit there and they look through telescopes at different stars and they notice something interesting, that the light is shifting. So that the idea is that you have this red shift and the red shift is shown here, a lab. In other words, if you have a flame and you look at the flame and you break it up into the spectrum, you get these little lines. But if you look at the telescope, lo and behold, look where the lines are. The lines are shifted to the right and that's called the red shift and it's observable. You can go and look and see at different parts of the sky and different objects in the universe and they're shifted red. And so that has been universally proclaimed to be the, the signal that, um, that the universe is expanding. In other words, the pieces that are emitting this energy are going away from us. Well, that's interesting because what Dr. Humphreys has discovered upon reading the literature, there's nothing here that creationists have invented, this is all data, that if you look at all the different stars and you plot the redshift, what would you expect to see? Let's think about this before I show you the graph. If the universe is expanding and you have all the stars moving away from us and they're all at different distances, you would expect the stars that are closer to be less redshifted, stars further away, more redshifted. Okay? And since there are so many stars, you'd think, well, if you graph the number of stars with a little redshift, the number of stars with a little bit bigger redshift, the number of stars with a little bigger redshift, that you'd get pretty well an even graph. Well, not quite. The amazing thing is that when you plot the data for the galaxy, that you get this kind of a graph. And this is very weird. And it's very surprising to see the data looking like this. Because what this means is that the galaxies, if the redshift means distance, and the galaxies are clustering at these redshifts, what does that imply about the distance they are away from us? Are they randomly distributed? Doesn't look like it, does it? It looks like, in fact, there's a cluster of galaxies X distance away from us. There's another cluster of galaxies that are X plus one distance away from us and so forth and so on. So here you have galaxies that are closer 
They're not spread out, though. They're clustered. And here's another cluster. And here's another cluster. And here's another cluster. All that's reported in the literature. Well, the implication of that is that if you... The only one way, really, if you think about geometry... And that is that we must be close to the center of the universe. The reason is that if you think of the geometry, and if we were not at the center of the universe, and we were over here somewhere, it would alter these, the distances that these galaxies are away from us, and you wouldn't have these clusters. The clusters are reflecting shells, almost like the universe is structured the way an atom is, with electronic shells. And so what we have here is clusters of galaxies in shells that seem to center on the Earth. And this, you see, if, if, you, were, if, if you change us and say, well, we're not at the center, and you were offset, then you would get a graph like on the right. You would have it smeared all different distances. So, what is the long and the short of this is? Long and the short of it is that the universe is circular in structure and that we are very close to the center. Humphreys argues that we're not exactly at the center because of various problems with light and so forth. And what this has said is that at the very center of the universe, God made something called planet Earth. And the drama of redemption is being acted out on this planet at the center of the universe. And the Lord Jesus Christ ascended from the center point to this point where he now reigns at the Father's right hand. Well, we want to go on and think further, reduce some further review tonight after thinking about the geometry of things. Let's turn to a passage that we dealt with last year. I'm going to deal with it again tonight. I'm going to review again. And uh, it's actually two passages. Or in the New Testament. And when you get there, put your hand or a card or a pencil or something in that place. And then turn over to the book of Psalms in the Old Testament and turn to Psalm 68. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this because we spent quite a bit of time on it last year. But we do want to get, get our heads back in operation. So we do a little review. Psalm 68. And when you get to Psalm 68... If you'll put a marker in there, finger or pencil or something, piece of paper, and now flip back to Ephesians 4. We're going to flip back and forth here. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is talking about an issue in the church, walking worthy of the manner and so forth. Verse 4 of chapter 4 is one body, one spirit, you are called, one hope you are calling. See, all this is ecclesiology. All this is the nature of the church. And he's got to deal with a social issue in the church. 
And this is the kind of passage that you've heard me say this before, and I keep on saying it. This guy, Paul, is a fellow that is so deep into theology that he couldn't tell you how to brush your teeth without bringing the Trinity into it. Here we are talking about a social issue of personal relationships and gifts in the local church, the structure of the local church, and now he's into the ascension and session of Christ. Well, how do you explain this other than the fact that the nature of the church is a heavenly body that has been created from the ascended Lord Jesus. The church's origin is in heaven. And here in verse 8, 9, and 10, he's distinctly referring to gifted people. Pass the passage, go past the passage to verse 11 and 12 and you'll see where he's going. So watch where he's going with this. In verse 11, he's talking about apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers that are given to the local church for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, building up the body of Christ. We've all heard sermons on that. These are gifted positions for the edification of the body of Christ. Well, Paul's going to do something to give us a picture of how those positions come about. Now, the background for this passage, I am sure, is Paul's biography. What do you know about the calling of the Apostle Paul? Where was he called? Where was his climactic moment? Damascus Road. Was he a friend of Christ going up the Damascus Road? What was he doing prior to that? Killing Christians. He had in his hand papers to go to Damascus, to take them out in Damascus. He's going to stop this new thing called the church right now. All of a sudden on the Damascus Road, bam, the Lord Jesus Christ appears to him, blinds him. And he has to be humbled and get baptized by a brother who's half afraid of him in Damascus. And then he, then he has this long period of time in his personal life of adjusting his theology to this experience of meeting the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Well, verse 8 and 9 describe how God gets apostles, how he gets prophets, how he gets pastors and teachers and gives them to the church. To each one of us, he says in verse 7, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, and if you have a study Bible, you'll notice that it's referring to Psalm 68. When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he descended in the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. Verses 9 and 10, by the way, show you how he taught scripture. He taught it verse by verse, word by word section by section. Well, now we've got to go back, hold the place here, and flip to Psalm 68. We've got to get the flavor of this, this passage that he used when all of a sudden he's talking about gifts to the church. He goes to Psalm 68 of all places. Well, Psalm 68 is a Davidic psalm. You can tell that by verse 1. And David is talking about God blessing Israel. Verse 10, 11, 12, and 13 show you it's, it's a military context. And in verse 17 and 18 of Psalm 68, he talks about the chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai. 
Now, those are the angelic components of God's army. Sometimes they were visible, like to Elijah. Sometimes they're not visible, but they're always there. So this is the angelic powers that God used in the Old Testament. Then he says in verse 18, You have ascended on high, you have led captive thy captives, thou hast received gifts among men. Now, if you're a real sharp observer and you're flipping between Ephesians 4 and Psalm 68, you should hit a glitch right there at verse 18. Because it looks at first glance like he's quoting it verbatim. But if you watch the verbs, there's one verb that's different. Anybody catch it? In Psalm 68, verse 18, what the, are the gifts coming from men or to men? In Psalm 68, verse 18, look at it. He received gifts from them. Now, in Ephesians 4, he's giving gifts to them. Now, when you see Paul quote an Old Testament, it's not a slip of the memory. This guy knew the Old Testament. So, when he takes a verb and he's moving it, he's making a point. So, as we said last time, we could go into a lot of background. We don't have time tonight, but those of you who weren't here last year, I showed from Old Testament usage that in verse uh, 18, when it says, Thou hast ascended on the highest, talking about the Ark of the Covenant coming up onto the Mount Jerusalem after Mount Zion at Jerusalem, after a military victory. David's commemorating the end of the great campaigns and the coming of the age of peace to Israel that would dominate his era and his sons. So, he's, he's commemorating the fact that on Mount Zion... He's going to put the Ark of the Covenant. And so, as that Ark moves up, it's carried by people and placed there, that is the movement of God Himself in the Old Testament. That's the way they thought of it. Because God dwelled in the cherubs. So, and I showed you last year about the verses that show that. We won't go into that. But what Paul's doing is, he's saying, look... This is a military metaphor of victory. So, he's making an analogy between the victory in the Old Testament and the ascent and descent of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, just as in the Old Testament, the ark came to Mount Zion, its resting place, to commemorate the age of peace and the culmination of a military campaign. With the ascension and session of the Lord Jesus Christ, that something has been defeated here. There's been a great victory. That means that the high ground has been captured. And in military campaigns, one of the strategic objectives is to get the high ground. That's why there's a debate about satellites. It's the high ground. That was the issue even back in Gettysburg. Those of you go to Gettysburg. It was the charging to get the high ground. So, whether it was a civil war, whether it's today, whether it's, it's the moon or the, the galaxy, it's whoever controls the high ground can eventually dominate. doesn't happen immediately, but eventually, whoever holds the high ground will dominate. So, what Paul's saying is that the Lord Jesus Christ occupies the high ground now. And now he's taking prisoners, because that's what the word captive is. That's the, the people who've been defeated. And he's turning to Ephesians 4 now. 
he's saying that he takes captivity captive and he gives gifts to men, but the gifts that he gives, according to verse 11, are themselves people. So what's the picture is that the Lord Jesus Christ take POW, prisoners of war, out of Satan's domain, just like he took Paul on the Damascus Road, and he equips them and he gives them to men. Now the irony is that in a way he gives them to himself. So this is not a violation of the spirit of that Old Testament text. In the Old Testament text, it was booty. God is the victorious God. God gets the booty. Now you say, well, wait a minute. If he gives gifts to men, that is, he gives the apostles and prophets, he's given it to men, how's that God giving it to himself? Because what are the people he's giving them to belong to? The church. And the church is in Christ. So this is Christ in heaven giving it to himself. It's the booty that he gets in the spiritual conflict that he uses to build what? His body. It's part of him. The church is part of Christ in this sense. That's the truth that you see in the New Testament. So he is giving the POWs and he won a model. Think of Paul in the Damascus Road. He was captured. He was energized by the spirit of this world. He was in the domain of darkness and he came into the domain of light through the call of God and God plugged him right back in the church as a great leader and author of half the New Testament. There's an example of what Paul's talking about. So, we have the capture of people. And this now tells us something else, which we'll get into next week. What is going on with Christ just sitting there at the Father's right hand for 1,900 years? I mean, when is he going to come back? He's going to come back only when the job is done. What job? And the answer to the question of what job is to delve into the purpose of the church age. And we're going to do that as we, as we follow on because we've got to deal with the purpose of the church age or we will misunderstand the end of the church age because the end of the church age isn't going to come until the job is done. So we have to understand a little bit about what is the job that has to be done so that the Christ can come back and the church can be raptured. The church can be raptured at a certain point in time. It's going to be raptured when the job is done, when it is complete. So, we want to understand the, these, this background. And if you want to read ahead, if you weren't here last year, there are three Old Testament passages we want to review. These three Old Testament passages give us the background for the titles of the Lord Jesus. One passage is Daniel chapter 7. This is the passage, people, that spawns that term that you meet in the Gospels. The Son of Man. The Son of Man title of the Lord Jesus comes out of Daniel chapter 7. It's a prophetic passage. So when Jesus picks up the term Son of Man and he uses it several key ways in the New Testament, it's a code word for something. And it was a code word that even the priest knew because he really got so ticked off when the Lord Jesus Christ dared in the middle of his trial he said, who are you? And the Lord Jesus looked up at him and said, you're going to see the Son of Man come in the clouds of heaven. And he's quoting Daniel 7. And the high priest says, that's blasphemy. And he tore his garment. He was so infuriated to hear that the Lord Jesus Christ was identifying himself with Daniel 7. 
So what, what's the problem with Daniel 7? We want to go into that. Second passage in the Old Testament. It's important to understand the nature of the Lord Jesus and what he's doing today. And that's Psalm 2. Psalm 2 was repeatedly used in the New Testament. That's the origin of the term, the Son of God. It comes out of the theology of Psalm 2. And the early church prayed several places. We'll go through those in the book of Acts where you see them using Psalm 2 in their praying. That the Son of Man has been blasphemed and so forth and so on. All right, the third Old Testament passage used a lot by the author of Hebrews is Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until, until I make your enemies your footstool. So that tips us off that there's something going on in church history. The thing I want to get at, folks, is that we haven't stagnated. There's, there's something happening for 1,900 years here, and it's going on right now, tonight. The church age, something is going on, very significant, that has to be finished before that kingdom can come. Church isn't the kingdom, but the church is necessary to get to the kingdom. And Psalm 110 gives us even more revelation. So those three passages, if you look at Daniel 7, Psalm 2, and Psalm 110. And we'll work with those next week. And that should finish up pretty much uh, the Ascent session. And we'll be ready to go on to Pentecost. Father, we thank you once again for our time tonight. We thank you that you have given us this great revelation about not only our personal lives, but the context, the surrounding of our personal life, the whole universe at large. And that we tonight can look and pray in the name of the one who sits in your presence. And we have a representative that is wholly acceptable, that is within the veil, that is a high priest who isn't just at your right hand, but one who has walked this earth, has experienced the travails of a fallen world and can empathize with our pain, with our sorrow, because he himself felt those things. We thank you now in his name. Amen. Okay, um, I guess we can have a few minutes of uh, Q&A. you like to bring up some subjects? George. No, that's the interpretation. In other words, he's taken captives and he's taken booty. That was the modus operandi of, of war down through history until the United States came along and then we rebuild our enemies. But 
that before us, everybody conquered, took captives. That's one thing they did. And they took booty, not to be uh, used for welfare purposes. And the whole idea there is Paul saying that the Lord Jesus Christ did also. He's taking booty. And he's taking POWs. He's taking principalities. He's taking people. So, since the overall context of Ephesians 4 is talking about gifted people, he's not talking about gifts as such. He's talking about gifted people, gifted offices. And he's saying that he gave those. So, the idea there is that where did he get those to give? Well, he got them by taking them out of the world system. It's a very powerful passage. Yeah, but he's take. Go ahead. Oh, no. No, he's not receiving gifts from the righteous. In Psalm 68, he's taking gifts from the defeated foes. All right. In the New Testament, Ephesians 4, the leading captivity captive, he's taken it from unbelievers. Paul was an unbeliever taken on the Damascus Road. So, the, 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 mo, the, the, the imagery... The overall imagery, there's details and then there's the overall imagery. The overall imagery is the victorious military commander. And the imagery in Ephesians 4 is therefore the Lord Jesus Christ as the victorious military commander. And the, 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 the shift in the verb is there because, because the way Paul sets it up it's the only way he can express the idea that the gifts come to the church. In, 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 um, in Ephesians 4, the gifts are given to men. The gifted people are given to men. So he's altering men in the, in the sense that the men in the Old Testament passage, he's taken from the rebellious. He's taken from those are rebellious men. Now, in the New Testament, he's taking the gifts of, from rebellious men and he's giving it to men. Now, the question is, well, how do you reconcile that? Well, I think you reconcile that by the method that I was using tonight by saying that the men, to, that, that the Lord Jesus is still taking it as far as rebellious men go. He never gi- he's not giving it to rebellious men in the New Testament. He's giving it to himself because the men who are the recipients in Ephesians 4 are what? They're men who are in Christ. Therefore, he's giving it to himself. He's not giving it back, as it were. In other words, you want to be careful. If you mapped it backwards from Ephesians to Psalm 68, you don't want to have it mapped backwards as saying that the military commander took captives and he gave them to rebellious men. So, so there's subtleties in the, in the, in the interpretation here. But the, the, the thing, when you get those kinds of Old Testament things, you have to go to what is the central point that he's trying to get across. The central point is the military imagery of victory. 
But what's interesting about that passage is not only that he, for example, in, in uh, Psalm 68, it's just the Ark of the Covenant going from the plain up to Mount Zion. But when you see him develop it in, in uh, Ephesians, he's saying, what is it? He ascended, but he also descended. Well, what does he mean descend? He's talking about the incarnation. The Lord Jesus Christ descended from where he was as the pre-incarnate Son of God, came down, was incarnated, and now he's back where he was before. So the dimensionality, the geometry of Ephesians 4 far eclipses the geometry of the mundane thing in Psalm 68. And where? Yes, it's an apposition. It's apposition. No, in the Psalm 68, he received gifts from men, even the rebellious men. Right? Well, the even from rebellious men is an apposition. It's apposition to explain the, the nature of the men he received gifts from. They're rebellious. They're the ones who were defeated. They were the enemies. In Psalm 68? Yeah, the people, he, the people he's defeating. Yeah, and it's receiving because he receives booty. See, this whole motif of receiving booty uh, and the victorious God... There's a lot of work in Old Testament scholarship that was that is so illuminating. Uh, some of it isn't illuminating at all, but this is particularly illuminating of David. Because remember, in in Samuel, there's a section prior to right around in David's life. It fits right around the time of Psalm 68. Um, remember what what was David concerned with at that point in his life? He had just become king, and he had subdued the nations roundabout. And what was next on his heart? Temple. He wanted a place for the tabernacle. Remember, it was over where there had been somebody's house there for a while. And so he wanted a place for a temple. So what he said is, he said to God, um, I want to build you a temple. Now, when he said that, it's now known from ancient Near Eastern literature that he was acting like an oriental king would act. For example, we have texts where Pharaoh, after he's been victorious, he has booty, a lot of money, gold, taken it, and what do they do with it? They build a temple. A build a temple in honor of the God they believe helped them in the battle. So when David naturally says, well, the Lord helped us conquer, and I just want to build him a temple, what does God prohibit him from doing? not going to build me a temple. And what does he say? I'm going to build you a temple. Second Samuel. That's the Davidic covenant. And it's a fascinating study because what that shows is that the God of Israel refused to allow the Hebrews to operate in the modus operandi of the normal ancient Near Eastern lifestyle. When David got to that point in his career as king, he was going to act like a king would normally act, a human king. And he would build out of gratitude a temple to the God who helped him. 
Now, when he tries to do that, God cuts him off and says, you're not going to build me anything. I'm going to build you something. And that's when he announces the Davidic dynasty and the Davidic covenant. So it's a fantastic package of God's grace. I mean, God could have accepted that from David, but he didn't. He said, I don't, I don't need that, David. Now, it turns out I'm going to let your son do it, Solomon. But I don't want you doing it. You've done your thing, and now I'm going to bless you. And that's the context of the Davidic covenant. That was because, you know, he wasn't going to let Solomon. David was a, was a military king and he wanted the temple done in peace. But if you look at the narrative of 2 Samuel 7, where the Davidic covenant comes, just look at that. I mean, that's where the grace shows up. It's, a, it's an amazing passage. And when you study the cultural context of it, it just wallops you with what God is doing to David there. This is one of those little passages in the Old Testament that shows you that, that the Lord's appreciation. Second um, Samuel 7. came about when the king lived in his house. The Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies. So there's the end of the military conquest. That's the context of Psalm 68. That the king said to Nathan the prophet, Look, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in tents. And then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. Well, now, Nathan kind of spoke out of hand. I mean, it seemed to be wise. So, oh, yeah, go ahead, Dave. Good luck. And so, when he, but no sooner had he said that, then God interferes. And, but it came to pass the same night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who built me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in the house since the day I brought the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent. Wherever I have gone with the sons of Israel, did I speak a word which I commanded my people, saying, Why have you built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, say to my servant David, Thus saith the Lord, I took you from pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be ruler over my people. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off your enemies before you, and I will make a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked affect them. Even from the day I commanded judges to be over my people, I will give you rest from all your enemies. When your days are complete, when you lie with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He, now here's the Davidic covenant, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. There's, by the way, the background for Psalm 2, which we're going to talk about next week. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with a rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall never depart from him as I took it from Saul and I removed before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. That, if you think about what normally happened in ancient Near Eastern politics, that is a stunning chapter. Now, in practice, in the Old Testament, what would happen, let's think about the money, you know, when the story is follow the money and you usually find out what the real deal is. Well, let's think about it. Who do you suppose got the booty money 
in most of the politics of the ancient Near East. If you were going to take millions of dollars in booty and you're going to build a temple, who gets the money? Now, the gods don't exist. So who's getting the money? The guys that run the temple. And who are the guys that run the temple? The priests of the false religions. So the money in warfare went to finance the temple cult of the victorious nation. Now, do you see why theologically God did not want it to look like and to in practice be a payment to him? God doesn't make money off of war. God doesn't make money from unbelievers. He doesn't accept gifts that way. He gives. He doesn't receive. What he receives is sacrificial heart, Romans 12, 1, our dedication. But he doesn't receive the mullah from unbelievers. And he cuts it off. I don't want that. That's not, that's not my way. But it's my way to be gracious to you. And that's the Davidic covenant. And see, there's a play on the word bet. Word D-E-T-H, Bethlehem. In the Hebrew, Bet means house. And so, David's talking about, he uses the word, Bet. I will build a Bet for you. A house for you. And God says, I will build a Bet for you. But the word Bet, the way David meant it, was a physical Bet. And the way God made it, it was a dynasty. The house of David. We still we speak of that, the monarchy, the house of Windsor, kings of England. And that the word house still is used that way. So, amazing chapter, actually. It's kind of nice we talked about it tonight because that Davidic psalm, you see that passage where I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. Now, you read Psalm 2, what does it say? This day I have declared that you are my son. And that's why we believe that Psalm 2 is a coronation song. It was actually sung when the king would be coronated and the prophet, who would be the kingmaker in the Old Testament, would be there, in this case, Nathan. And at the coronation of the king, when he received the anointing and the crown, there would be this music and ceremony and they would recite Psalm 2. Now, it's interesting that the New Testament picks that up and uses it for the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Hebrews, the epistle of Hebrews say... He has received a name above every name. And the author says in chapter 1 of Hebrews, And to what angel has he ever said, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. He didn't say that to any angel. He said that to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, it's an exciting picture of the power of the Lord Jesus. And I show you these kind of militant places in the New Testament because I want you to see, ain't that some little yeah, kind of thing going on here? This is, uh, is, it's got big, heavy stuff associated with it. This war going on between good and evil. And there's going to be a loser and there's going to be a winner. And the Lord Jesus Christ has pulled off a strategic maneuver of capturing the high ground. And now, from that high ground, he's going to conquer the rest of the world. Now, the question is, how is he going to do it? And that's the question we have to grapple with and why I'm spending all this time in review last year. Because 
we've got to get all that in our heads so that when we get into this return of Christ thing, it fits into the larger picture of what's going on here. Because it's a very complicated thing. The return of the Lord Jesus has lots of pieces and parts to it. That's why it's very difficult. You can't have somebody who's become a Christian in the last two minutes all of a sudden master all the details of eschatology. Not going to happen. That's the problem. Yes, go ahead. Well, I'm just waiting for somebody to answer a question. Well, if it's not Debbie, it's you or George. Somebody else raised questions. <laughs> what will you do without these three guys? See? See what I'm saying? See where the questions come from? Well, that's what he said. You will be with me. The absence of the body is face to face with the Lord. Well, that's right. The Old Testament, yeah. Well, that's why the Lord. All right, the, no. There's been no resurrection. The Lord Jesus Christ is the first fruit, and His resurrection's it. Now, the, the problem is that going back to the New Testament, to be absent from the body is to be face to face with the Lord. That's a powerful prepositional relationship. It's not just. Oh, well, absent of the body, you're going to be around the Lord somewhere, you know, nearest galaxy. Uh, that's not what the text says. It says to be absent from the body is to be intimately present with the Lord. Well, if the Lord's at the Father's right hand, guess where we're going to be? So it seems that seems pretty clear. The problem that uh, you're bringing up is Don, Donna's looking at it from the Old Testament point, Old Testament saint point of view. And think about what did the Lord Jesus say to the thief on the cross? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you will be with me in paradise. So the the inference, because we don't have a lot of revelation, the inference is that the Lord Jesus Christ went to the Old Testament holding ground. Abraham's bosom is called in another place. That is the place of the departed souls. And that he took them with him. That is a matter of discussion. I just know enough to, to know that in two minutes I'm not going to get Well, there's that mysterious passage in Matthew. I think it's in Matthew, one of the Gospels, where 
the graves were opened, and that's a troublesome passage of setting it together. Um, but the, the big idea here is that the Old Testament distance from God, remember the holding tank idea. By the way, the holding tank idea is there because of what reason? Think about it. What hadn't yet happened? Atonement. That, that sacrifice hadn't been made yet. The promise had been made, but they were waiting on that promise to be executed. So you, before you, yeah, you. That's why in Hebrews, if you look at Hebrews for every place where they're talking about the ascension and session, you wind up solidly in the middle of Psalm 110 all the time. Always talking about Melchizedek, Melchizedek, Melchizedek. And one of the things that if you do that is about seven or eight passages. Look at the importance. And you work your way through Hebrews. It's interesting when you look at that, the one thing that emerges is, oh, he once and for all made a sacrifice. He no longer has to do that. The non-repetitive sacrifice. And the reason that's important is because of Rome. What is Mass? Yeah. It's redoing something. And if there's one thing that Hebrews mentioned, it is once and for all. You don't have to do it. It's finished. That's the good news. <clears throat> I mean, if you were literally, the, the, the mode that you're talking about in the Old Testament of, in a holding tank because the work isn't finished, that's really a picture of what Roman Catholicism still does. It's like it's a holding tank. There's no, there's no assurance. There's no... Ah, it's finished kind of thing. Because it isn't. It keeps being done again and again and again and again. Because remember, Mass in Roman Catholicism is very serious. It's not a ceremony. Mass is not just a ceremony. Priest isn't up there just doing it. There's something they believe that miraculously is going on in Mass. That is a recapitulation of sacrifices happening there. It's not a ceremony like the Protestant idea of communion. What do you mean figurative? It's an expression to be close. It's an idiomatic expression to be close. Well, it's literal. An idiom always has a literal foundation because you can't you can't get meaning from non-literal things. So an idiom gets its meaning because it first is literal. And then because it's literal, you think about it and you say, well, 
I understand the literalness of it, therefore I infer the metaphorical from it. And so what we're saying is that the, the I mean, you see it in the book of Revelation. I mean, there's thousands of martyrs that are right there sitting at the throne. They're right next to the Lord. How long, O oh Lord, will you avenge our blood? And, and they're, they're talking right next to him. The rapture. That's what First Thessalonians and First Thessalonians five is all about. No, not unless you believe that the church is Israel. The thing you're getting into what the, what complicates eschatology, because the problem is you've got all these promises that talk about Yom, the, the Yom Yahweh, the Day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is totally Old Testament. It's all given in terms of Israel and Old Testament history. So you have all these dozens and dozens, hundreds of promises of these details of the Lord coming back. And, and it's interesting because when the Lord in Matthew 24, which is all, again, it's an Israel context. Church hasn't happened in Matthew 24. It doesn't happen until Acts 2. Uh, at that point, talk, the Lord talks about his coming back. There's no mention of resurrection there. You're going to find it. Where's the resurrection in Matthew 24? Not there. And the, ne- the first time the resurrection of the church shows up isn't until Paul starts talking about the rapture. And it's in a different context than the Old Testament resurrection. That's what complicates itself. And if you, if people say, ooh, well, gee, that's such a complicated difference. Well, that's, sorry, folks, that's just the way it is. The first coming of Christ was also complicated. Next week, we're going to go into the passage that says, if you would accept me, you would have the kingdom, and John the Baptist is Elijah. But since you've rejected me, John the Baptist isn't Elijah, and you're not going to get the kingdom. What does that tell you? It tells you that Jesus Christ offered the kingdom and it was rejected. And it was going to be rejected again in Acts 2 and Acts 3 because Peter's preaching a sermon. That's not an evangelistic sermon in Acts 2 and 3, just a simple church age evangelistic action. Look at the vocabulary. In Acts 2 and 3, Peter's inviting. What does he say? Repent and receive Christ. And what does he promise? That times of refreshing will come now. The times are refreshing is an Old Testament thing for the Millennial Kingdom. So in Acts, early Acts, there's no recognition that the church is something distinct until after Peter does that second invitation. And then you have the fulfillment of the parable of Matthew 22 when the king has offered twice for people to come to the wedding feast. The first time, they didn't pay any attention. The second time he offered the invitation, they killed his servants. No servants were killed in the Gospels. Servants are killed in the book of Acts. Twice, Israel is given the chance to accept the Messiah and bring in a kingdom. Now, this is what I'm saying, why I told you last year there's a difference between dispensational Reformed theology. The Reformed people just gag at what I just said. Because what they think I'm saying, and they, they don't listen, they, they, they jump to conclusions and try to put words in your mouth. What, I, what they think I'm saying is that, well, gosh, it's, you made history contingent on man's volition. I mean, you, I mean, just think, if people accepted Christ, you never had a cross. You've made cross plan B. 
It's, it's just a, it's a because of rejection. Now it's the last thing God can do, so He thinks up the cross to, to wait a minute, hold it. Look at all the way from the Genesis chapter three. His plan B right there. What was God's plan A? No sin. And then we have to fall. This is plan B, right? So now we got he's going to say that redemption is plan B in God's mind. Come on. I mean, you've got this 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 dance that goes on. What I call two steps forward, one step back. Two steps forward, one step back. That's the way God works all down through history. It shouldn't be any a, a sudden um, sudden thing that all of a sudden we get bent out of shape theologically because we see this process in, in the Gospels and Acts of two offers of the kingdom that are rejected. And somehow that makes the cross plan B. That's no more legitimate than fussing about Genesis 3. Think about when Israel came out of Egypt. What was plan A? Direct conquest. What actually happened? Forty years later. There again, same thing. And it's always two. And why do you suppose it's always two? What is the law of evidence in the Bible? By the mouth of two or three witnesses it shall be established. What's being established? The sinfulness of 